Hello, 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 and welcome to Tease Me. This is a podcast about the intersection of golf, business, and life. And occasionally we'll drop some gems on networking and just how that makes your life better. Because knowing more than one person is actually a good thing. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to Tease Me. On this episode, which is the 18th episode and the last from my first season, actually I'm going to switch up the format. The beautiful thing about technology is this sometimes fails you. This whole podcast has been an exploration in adaptability because I'm literally um, in my sorority sister's porch with none of my equipment running this podcast because I felt it was a critical time to make sure that I got this message out and you were available and I wanted to make sure that, you know, we had this conversation right now. I think one of the things to be very aware of is the time that we're in right now in life. And I thought it was super important and critical to have a more reflective conversation around this last season. And as a result, I decided to bring on a guest actually to host my show today. Um, His name is Newton Paul, and he is an art advisor and art consultant, and he's going to tell you a little bit about himself, but in the wake of other people becoming aware and other cultures being aware of Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, and the plight of just a community that has been in pain for a long time, but then people looking to take an active role in changing just how things are perceived and the fact that our voices haven't been heard and that many voices haven't been heard and marginalized. Um, I thought it was a great time to have this conversation. So everyone, welcome Newton. Paul, Newton, tell us like a little bit about yourself. Uh, Thank you, Latoya, for this opportunity to share. And I agree with you. It's a time of uh, reflection and processing and really thinking about where we're going to go next. And I think, um, the segue talking about golf and how it uh, influences other industries and how we can build from there is, is a great perspective to start with. But a little background on myself. Uh, I worked in pharmaceuticals for about 15 years uh, from operations to compliance to supply chain. And unfortunately, I uh, lost uh, the job opportunity, which actually thrusted me into art collecting. So... I joined boards like uh, the MoMA, Friends of Education, which primarily focuses on the African diaspora, um, and also El Museo, uh, the Hispanic board um, in uh, Uptown. And I'm currently on the board of directors for the Print Club of New York. So I wanted to join these different boards just to get a different perspective on uh, the African diaspora, Latin American art, and printmaking, and to understand the valuations and how people are doing things from exhibits, uh, connecting with certain artists and these different practices and different mediums. And so this actually led me into advising. So I've helped people acquire different artworks, Cuban artworks, African-American artwork, African artworks, um, and just helping them grow in value and understanding the intrinsic value of how it impacts them and the people around them and also the financial value of it. Sometimes you have to create the thing and not be confined to the boxes that people define for you. So while you've defined this industry as that, I mean, innovation just proves that and creativity proves that you have to continue being creative for things to happen. You can't wait for someone 
to come up with it. So me and this podcast, why we're here, why this last episode was so important to me and why I wanted to speak about it is because whoever's listening to this, whatever it is that is placed in your mind, it's time for you to create it. Like right. you need to, no one else can see that vision. It, seed was planted for you to do it. And I'm here to tell you, I built this podcast because my voice was not being heard. I built this podcast because I didn't hear myself in the conversation. I am not a professional golfer, nor do I want to be a professional golfer. I'm a person that's rocked Wall Street, that's sat at these hedge funds, that's been at Goldman Sachs. And I use golf to get ahead in my career. And I feel like I'm tired of, I was the only person of color sometimes, the only woman sometimes. Like there's a need for, and, and I spend money and I like to look good on the golf course and I love to dress the part. And I mean, when is the market going to ever speak to the needs that I have? And it's not. So it's time to create it. They're not going to pay for it. I'm, I'm going to build it myself. No, absolutely. And, you know, uh, the building it yourself also has to keep in mind, we could collectively go into another country relatively close to here, whether it's Haiti, Dominican Republic, or Costa Rica, whatever country is nearby where our currency goes a longer way and build our own golf course, you know, and, and make it accessible for anybody and generate some level of wealth. But from an art standpoint, uh, you know, it's, I just won a bid in Europe on an Andy Warhol piece of Pele, a lithograph, for 79 euros. Now, so wait, speak to me. You have to go. First of all, how did you find a Pele piece by Warhol to even bid on and, like, I mean, obviously, you're not going to give us the one-on-one. And I think people, if you want to know more about this process, you'll contact him. And I'll put his Instagram in the story and in the, the bio. But what? How? Pele? What? Well, Explain, please. Well, it's all about doing the research, doing the work. So I, I don't know how. I was just looking for different artists in the States. And what I found is in America, you know, it's a capitalist system. You go to our auction houses these people breaking record numbers. I, I remember doing a presentation at a college where I put up 10 paintings. Those 10 paintings were worth a total of $1 billion. And one of those paintings was worth 500, estimated value of 500 million, which was the Salvador Mundi painting that they couldn't even confirm if it was truly the artist. But somebody from the Saudis bought it. For five hundred million dollars. So, what I did, just constantly researching and looking, and I would like look. I'll look for a piece here to see. I saw uh, the Andy Warhol. It's a lithograph edition of one hundred, and I saw that somebody paid six hundred something dollars without the buyer's premium, which is the additional commission that the auction house charges you, right? So I was like, you know, what? I'm going to start looking out in Europe and see if anything's out there. And I just happened to see something being bidded on and it started at one euro and bidded up to about, uh, I think it was at 70 at the time. And I was like, you know what? I'll pay 90 euros for it. So I put the maximum bid of 90 euros. And I, I looked at the history and I saw two people battling it out. So I was like, you know what? I'll wait 24 hours before 
actually it was 12 hours before the bid closes. So I put in a bid and I guess the person already had their max bid. So it hit 70, 79 euros. And I was like, all right, I'll look in the morning. Around one o'clock, the bid's going to end. And nobody bid it for it. And I was like, wow, I just paid 79 euros for Andy Warhol piece on Pele, who is the greatest soccer player of all time. Even though Sports Illustrated tried to put some other guy up there, but the guy cheated in a soccer match and used his hand to hit the ball into the goal. And so again, they try to take away our credibility. Pele scored the most goals in the history of soccer and won the most championships or any soccer team. So here I am, you know, and I remember, you know, my family talking about Pele. So I guess the nostalgia for it just came up and I bid it on it. And I'm not in a position to bid for it. My, I got to use my financial needs for other things. But again, I looked at somebody paid $700 for this piece and Pele is still alive. And I'm not wishing anyone to pass away or die. But the reality is all of us have an expiration date. So I know when that day comes, people are going to be interested in his work. Unfortunately, that's how this society works. When somebody dies, you get the, like Kobe Bryant, you get the, 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 the big show jerseys, people are selling seats to go to the funeral at, at the Lakers stadium for how many thousands of dollars? And how did Kobe benefit from that? How did his daughter or the other families benefit from it? But this is America. Anytime it moves around capitalism, they're going to find a way to make money on it. So I paid 79 euros for a piece that somebody paid 700 for just last year. Yeah, there's a number of rap songs about that. Like Biggie had one, you're nobody till somebody kills you. Yeah. Um, not to say that I want to have that morbidity in our conversation, because actually, when you think about what's happening with George Floyd in this entire movement, yeah, he's he, in his life, may not have been able to change the world, but in his death and with witnessing the horrific, I don't know, inhumane way that he was treated, it launched a movement where no one cannot see that. I mean, maybe somebody can, but no one cannot see that and wonder how another human could treat another human that way. Like, it, it, it's, um, it sparked a moment for people to be more reflective of the things that are happening in their spaces. Like, are we doing all that we can to create spaces of opportunity and diversity and really looking at like changing the narrative? So what happens is, you know, I have this conversation and I'm like, combos for change, everyone hashtag talk about it. But if I know what my concern is and my issue is, and you know what your concern is, and we share commonality in our friends and our circles, then we're kind of just beating the same drum. And so the challenge here is have the conversation and be courageous with someone that doesn't look like you, like open the forum to do a good exchange of like what you didn't know and, and be vulnerable enough to say, I didn't see this. I see it now. And I don't want that outcome. I, I want to, I want to be able to change this. And I might not change your overall perception of everything everywhere, but one step at a time, I can at least help you see where the deficiencies are and we can work together to find tools to, to bridge the gaps and change it. No, no band-aids. Like, don't give me a band-aid for my broken leg. Like, I know I have a scrape, but the leg is still broken. Let's look to mend that to the best of our ability. It will always be 
damaged. It will never be the same, but there's still opportunity in that. So I've seen a number of letters that people have written to the air, I guess. Like, I guess it's good to get your voice out, but I seek actionable change to an accountable party. How does that work, these open letters to no specific addressee? How does that work? You know, I I think the other key thing in what you're articulating is, um, I think when other people hear Black Lives Matter, the conversation becomes more defensive and more of a us versus them when that's not what we're looking for. We're not looking to beat you out and take power over. We're looking to be accepted and valued in this environment. This country could be a lot better if it gave people that don't have a voice to contribute and actually get credit for what they're building. But, you know. Well, that's a that's a good point. You mean, build what you're building, not worry about appropriation and that your idea will be taken, but that you'll get the due credit and be elevated into the space for what you rightfully deserve and that you're contribution will not be viewed differently because of the color of the skin. So what I I wanted to kind of like highlight, you know, I think the challenge is when people are looking for ways to make a difference. Like you woke up, you said, wow, this is bad. Like it's not really diverse. I can do something different. What could I do? Where can I affect power? I really believe change comes from top down. So for whatever leadership role a person is in, it's really starting there. And like, them walking the walk and talking the talk. So walk it like talk it, it's a song, it's a life, it's a motto, but it's also like a possibility um, that will affect the new reality. Like it's the thing you need to, to really look at from like a corporate perspective. And so as I look at some of the letters that people have written and some of the conversations people have had, I really don't see it changing unless it's measurable. So one thing in business that I can say that's taking away is smart goals. So even as you're writing your book, you're looking at it from the perspective of, I'm giving you this information, but you really need to take action to effectively make a difference. And when I think about this industry and I think about, you know, we started this conversation around people being multifaceted, multidimensional, but then also being denied opportunities. And so when I take us back to where we were in the conversation around the PGA having the whites only clause from 31 to like 1930 something to like 1960 something. You're talking about 30 years of missed opportunity. You, you, and you gave me a term that I hadn't used because I think you used it in college, but we had something different, but you called, you said Alana, right? African, Latinx, Asian, Native American, Native American. So A-L-A-N-A. And when I look at that diaspora, I think about, you know, history, tell the story. I think one of the first steps that people can do, um, specifically these entities like the PGA, who I notice have like some interesting black history facts. Why can't they just be facts? Like, <laughs> thank you for calling that out though. I do appreciate it. Cause I don't think that some things have gone, no- they're unknown. And I don't think they've gone um, or have gotten enough recognition uh, mainly because those history points are suppressed. But if you know the history, why are you intentionally suppressing them? That is probably the question that many people would ask. So if there are stories that have not been told, tell them. Integrate it into the history and tell the story 
Um, if I'm giving you a story, include that story. You know, obviously fact check better than Fox News, but fact check and include <laughs> the story and include it as part of the narrative. Make it, don't, don't make it this exceptional thing. Make it part of commonplace language so that it doesn't have to be performing four and five times greater than the average individual. Like, I think that the contributions that people of color or any any diaspora make our contribution based out of necessity and just the heart of invention because it was a need. Not because I'm some exceptional person that, but because I needed to create it because I needed it to be. I don't want it to seem like an anomaly. So just tell the history, tell the story. That's my number one. Mm -hmm. um, number two, I, I mean, I next, my next challenge would be to all private golf clubs. The game is growing, is it? No, not really. Like it's kind of dying with membership sometimes. But it, it is growing in certain communities. There are more women playing. There are more people of color being um, embraced in the game as their wealth and their time increases. Like you have more disposable income and more disposable time. You want to be part of these opportunities. And so with private clubs, my challenge is look at, like fund the change and look at your membership and look at the opportunity to diversify that more and look at the opportunities to bring in additional members that are in your immediate community that are leaders in your community that would not normally want to be part of your club because you've been excluding them and not been welcoming. Like the lifeblood of your club is in bringing forward the next generation that looks more like what this generation looks like. When you look at the marches and who's protesting, Integration is real. I, I don't know what it looks like in the South. Like maybe the South can perpetuate this um, separate but equal kind of behaviors and mechanisms. But I think that the more progressive individuals that are really thinking about capitalism know that the real color of everything is green. So when it comes down to it, like the diversification just improves your overall reach in everything from business deals to the people that you meet, I just from a long-term perspective, it's just, it's the best risk management strategy. So looking at like diversity from your recruitment, from your membership committee, from how you attract people into the club and look at it from like a quantifiable perspective, 25%, 25 by 2025, like take it and go with it. I wanna see 25% increase in private club numbers. Think about how attractive that is in general and it's such an opportunity that I think that these private clubs have not really had to think about because maybe you are racist. Like maybe it's so, and, and, and you know what? Own that. I don't like black people. I don't like women. I don't, you're a misogynist, you're a racist. See, labels make people get defensive, Newton. And so I think that's what the issue is, but it's all good, like own that then. Because that part that Martin Luther King was talking about, it's blatant racism that hurts so much more. It's so hard to have someone smile in your face and like hate your guts. Yeah. Oh my God, I hate your guts. Like <laughs> you hate my skin that I was born in. Like I didn't choose that. I was just like born. And every day I get judged by it. Every day I get judged by just the fact that I was born and the fact that I bleed the same red blood and breathe the same air, even though. And I and I think that, you know, I think this is a moment in time where people are a little bit more open to accepting that that was my plight and that is the issue that I'm raising and you're open to hearing it and now I want you to respect it and let's do something to make it 
better for everyone. But, you know, people will say, Latoya, you're just not angry enough. LJ, you're just not upset enough. And I'm like, yeah, I am upset. I go into these courses and I go into these places and I've not felt welcome. I think about at least three or four times where I've played it off, but I know sure and well that my presence was not welcome there. And people say, I didn't see that. And I'm like, don't worry. So while it's running a little longer than expected, I will get through these other points. Mm -hmm. The number one was these governing bodies that tell the story of organizations like the USGA, the PGA, your opportunity is here. Tell the history and say like, we're not rewriting history. We're acknowledging the spaces where the opportunity was missed and where we might not have necessarily called it out and where we own that. Like, yes, we had some clauses, but we're willing to stand by it. I mean, if you are willing to stand by telling that story. Because somebody sat down and wrote it and wrote that clause. Let's tell us more about that story. Mm -hmm. um, the third point that I'd make, and I put this challenge out to the USGA as well, and all of the entities, I'm including every single tour that golf includes. So these tours are sponsored. Like for example, you have the Charles Schwab tour, which is like one of the first major golf tournaments to occur right now where they're playing live. There are no guests, um, no, no spectators are allowed right now, but they had a moment of silence. The 8.46 tea time was not booked and it was a moment of silence for George Floyd. Acknowledged the fact that he had passed away, but then acknowledged that they're in, there's some solidarity there. But beyond that, what is the next motion and what is the next action? My challenge is economic opportunity specifically around diversity of dim vendors, of vendors. So I spoke about that Alana, you know, African, Latino, um, Asian, Native Americans, right? Look at that diaspora and create uh, a supplier diversity program, specifically speaking to ensuring that, let's go with my number, 25 by 25. 25% of those are diverse. And that, and of those different demographics, but then when we look at economic opportunity, many businesses are not necessarily funded well. So we know that like black founders are not funded as much as other founders, period. Like that's just scientifically been proven by the data. The data always go to the data. The data shows that. What mm -hmm. we can look at is creating more programs similar like small business services or these entities where they help companies understand scalability as well as the... Um, sustainability of their business model. Like you're not just going to throw me out there and expect me to supply, you know, a hundred thousand people with towels for this new tournament and not offer the resources. If you have a manufacturer in China that can mass produce this and you know that my product is good, then, and you have the relationships, it's also being able to not make me reinvent the wheel, help invest in my success as a business owner. So if I'm creating the best new you know, waffle cone version of a towel and you have a producer that can help me work through my product process. And I'm not saying that from an innovation perspective, some great ideas don't get past go because they don't have the resources to manufacture at the scale needed to grow. And there are a lot of opportunities to, to really look at that. So when I think about this from a business perspective and solving a problem 25 by 25, includes diversifying that supplier pipeline. It includes ensuring that there's sustainability and success associated with that diversification. Diversification. 
Like, don't set me up to fail. Don't set these businesses up to fail to check a box because I'll never forget when I was once hired as a double checkbox. Someone told me, oh, you're a double checkbox. Like, they literally said that to me. If you don't think that's a microaggression, I don't know what is. Uh, well, you're a black female, duh, and you're in technology. And I was like, could it be my master's degree and my 3.7 GPA? You're being very confident. Yeah, and I work very hard for that GPA. I feel like I earned it. But that wasn't what the conversation was. And I think that when the opportunity is presented for companies to be more um, intentional in the diversification and intentional in how they show up to, to change status quo and to change structural institutional racism, the opportunity is also providing the initial support that these companies can be built up. Because no, like I'm an entrepreneur. I don't come from an entrepreneurial family, but I've surrounded myself with peers and mentors. And I'm also, you know, in that space where I'm seeking more advanced people to know what my business model looks like, because it's going to be harder when you don't have examples to learn from. You learn a little, a little bit differently. You, you, you learn from the school of hard knocks. And obviously some um, some lessons. When you speak about uh, vendor partnerships, again, that's my background, supply chain. So the constant thing I was told when I was a manager of uh, APIs, which are the active ingredients in the drug and excipients, uh, my policy was even if I didn't know you and you just did a cold call, I'll give you five minutes. And what I was hearing from a lot of the vendors particularly black ones, was like, you know, I've been calling on this place for five years and they would never let me into the store. And then I would give them the opportunity and they would make a substantial revenue and it was still giving me savings. So that goes to the fact that uh, what you're trying to say in terms of 25, I don't, I, I, for me personally, I, I don't want it to be 25% by 2025. 20, I think we need to put pressure to really take those steps to do it. Because the longer it takes, people lallygag and justify things. There's got to be a way to be aggressive. Because when corporations want to make money, they're going to set these smart goals and stretch you to the point that you're going to come close. So part of it is getting your uh, purchasing department to have certain policies to give uh, the minority businesses. And let's not say minority, because then it gets confused. The Alana community access to those contracts. So again, it's not us versus them. So let's say you have a vendor that supplies you with certain products for the golfing, right? So they're making a profit. So all right, we're still going to give you 75% of the business, but we want to give 25% 25% to that minority business uh, that can supply the differential of towels for the tournament. So that way you're giving a new business an opportunity to segue in and you're still allowing your primary supplier to make a decent profit. So the both worlds can actually win because you're actually giving a person a chance, a minority, uh, Alana business, an opportunity to get in. So because other opportunities tend to get closed off you because they'll say, oh, you've never done it before. 
So, so that's a good point you're making. I think that the, the reason why I give leeway in the 20 by 25 is because I strongly believe that many companies lack the infrastructure to really affect sustainable change. So you can't, you, you may not have a quality enough purchasing process. Everything's procedural. And in my, in my mind, everything's process oriented and data driven. You may not be capturing the data points that would allow you for, to even identify who your suppliers are. You're mm -hmm. dealing with some legacy businesses that have been passed down from family members. And quite honestly, they're probably not even competitive pricing at this point. Now right, it's just right. relationships. It's not even that this was the the most or best quality product. At this point, it could be that was the strongest relationship that has sustained time. If you right. start to look at the origins of some of the contracts that may exist, there is no viability based on the best performance. Heck, the government doesn't even have that. Like there are a lot of contracts in place that are just by way of legacy relationships. But I, I challenge this in the sense that I give the opportunity because in my heart of hearts, I am in the place where I can only, I think someone said the word forgiving people. I can only believe that your best intention is what you'll put forward because it's best for your business. Not because it's just good for your heart, because my money is green. Everyone's money is green. And there is, an incentive in diversification because from a support perspective, there's just so many different value propositions around creativity when it comes to, it, it just creates a more competitive market, honestly. You know, if you know that you're up against someone, you're gonna do better. You're gonna make sure that your product is better. You're going to try to outperform your peer. Um, I think the other opportunity that we have to kind of, not opportunity, but framework that I want to kind of think about is people tend to feel like they're operating from a place of loss when someone else enters a market or when the place is carved out. So I also don't want in this 25% increase or 25% transition for the people that lost the business. I don't want them to be looking at this moment. Like it was stolen from me. It was taken from me. You know, if we perform on a bell curve, let it be a competition of the best. Because somewhere along the lines, when you're making room for the brand, they probably were able to compete at an equal caliber. It's just that they weren't able to enter. So maybe scale and sustainability might not have been the infrastructure piece that allows them to perform as well as the other company. But the quality of their product is good. And so I think that when we start to leverage data, it will help people level set what quality is versus you know, just checking a box. And I think that's an important thing. Like ensure that there are proper metrics to measure the quality of what we're, what we're talking about in, in, in changing these vendors. Because somebody will say, I lost out because of this minority program. And that might not have really been the reality. And, I, and the data needs to show that, that it's truly a decision to make room in a market for people that we're ready. I'm not talking about the person that has like a prototype and an idea. Right. If you're listening, I'm not talking to you. Like you're, you're not home. I'm talking about somebody that is in market that needs to do, needs to be put in the right place so that they can grow. I'll give you a perfect example. I was at the PGA show. Shout out to um, Black Hole Putters. They reached out to me on Instagram because they knew I was going to the show. I interviewed them 
And I have this footage, so I, I need to check my YouTube channel because maybe I should post this as well. That same gentleman was on Shark Kick for another one of his inventions. Wow. He, incre he created this black hole put putter, which helps you putt more accurately. Accurately. Is everyone saying it right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, but it helps you putt better in a straight line because it uses like these laser lights and points to the line and you putt the line. Phenomenal. He has a booth at the PGA show. The booth is in like the corner. So I don't know if this is a good place or a bad place because it was my first time at the show. But just the sheer fact that I found him because he found me on Instagram. Are you kidding me? Wow. That, that, I feel like that is a missed opportunity. Here you are with someone that has a tool. Now, could somebody recreate that in China? Maybe. But you have someone that's created something that has already proven themselves in a domain related to golf, but not necessarily with this particular product. Where is the support? Like, I'd love to see more support of that specifically. You have, you just, you have a, there's an opportunity in that to, to ensure that when we think about suppliers, making those jobs visible, because I think that that's the other piece. If you are in B school, business school, and you're looking at golf as a market and you like golf or whatever, you do not know all of the ancillary businesses that are used to support this game. Right. And if you're in business school and you're not a golfer, I'm talking about like the average person that wants to solve a problem business school person, or even just a career professional like myself, there's events, there's event marketing. There, is, there are the materials that people provide to um, catering. You know, how do you clean up? Who's cleaning up? Like, I, I don't know, maybe they're hiring a third party company to do the cleanup after event. Who's creating those boards? Who's constructing the actual um, venue? Because these golf courses exist, but when events occur, stands are built up. Those people are out of work right now, FYI, since there are no spectators. But though there are all of these support functions and businesses that are beyond just the essential service role. There are strategists and envisionaries that are dreaming up and putting these things together. There are commentators. You've got Damon Hack. You've got one or two other people, but there just are not a lot of people of color that are going to add their flavor to the conversation. You have just so many pieces. Like, I let me find a, a black golf designer or like anything. Can I can I get jewelry that I like to wear? I like to wear earrings. I would wear these hoops, but they move too much. So I usually wear earrings that are studs or the ones that hang and don't get in the way of my swing. But there are certain things that I would want to bring to the golf game that I just add in because it's not golf related, but I just like it as part of my style. So I get, to, I get to have this long conversation, but even looking at the MWBE certifications that New York State does or a lot of other cities do, help companies develop the rigor so that they can be sustainable in this market and like be an advocate and use that platform. But you know, I I I won't leave, I won't stop there because I will also say leadership. They're stagnant, they've been there for years. And when you look at the people that get promoted, they're not necessarily qualified to be in the role. I think it's time to think outside the box. When you look at corporate boards, you're looking at many business leaders that have led successful companies that really serve as good consultants in this industry that are diverse. When you look at like a Ken Chenault, when you look at someone, but give them a voice and a platform, right? Give them the opportunity to be advisory or be staff or 
looking at a diverse leadership, but I think you and I had talked about this top-down approach, looking at all levels of your organizations. It's my same concept. Look left, look right, look up, look down. If you're peers to your left and you're peers to your right, all look the same, problem. If the people below you all look the same, problem. If the people below you all look the same as you or all look the same as each other, problem. If the people above you all look the same, problem. You're just missing opportunities for diversity. It's like left, right, up, down. That's my my gist, and I I think I say this. I swear I think I'm going to write a book called Left, Right, Up, Down, because you want to see if there's a problem, look left, right, up, and down. That's that's usually, yeah. Uh, Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. It's just a little low, but that's because everyone, let me tell you, when you try to go on the road with your podcast and technology fails, it just does. It, but I but I love it, but it just does what it wants sometimes because I am inadequately prepared. My phone battery died. Now we're back to the computer. And this is for the podcast, so you're listening. But we're going to have the video, and you're going to be like, she looks like pixelated, but it's all good. We're going to enjoy it's, it. It's I might edit it a little. We'll it's see. Creative. Don't worry about it. I, but I wanted to touch on the second point that you made with regards to membership and evolving, right? Um, it, uh, we can use Lincoln Center as a prime example. Lincoln Center's uh, trustees were dying off. Members were dying off. Money wasn't coming the same. And people didn't have an interest in ballet. You know what they did? They bought in Misty Copeland. So people have no idea of the Misty Copeland effect. They had sold out shows. They had an increase in uh, uh, females of color wanting to become ballerinas. And even down to the supplies, to your point, black girls can't wear nudes like white females. So there was an Italian company that designed nude tights for black girls. It was never done before. And these people generated millions of dollars. And guess what? We were part of that process. We were part of the process of buying the tickets, buying the books, celebrating her. But when it came to the all the ancillary details, the vendorship, the, the uh, financial benefit, very little. So, you know, for me, what I've realized in America, just like hip hop, when we were growing up, it was demonized. They were throwing the CDs out in the street and driving uh, equipment over it and saying it's, it's the devil's music and all this nonsense. Now hip hop is global. It's the number one form of music in any aspect of our life. So, you know, the person that's listening to your podcast, that has the aha moment, that opens doors for the African and Latin diaspora, don't get it twisted, the Latin American population is next up to be targeted for marketing. So if that person that steps out and does the things you're talking about, the 25% of vendorship, 25% of staff and leadership, they are going to revolutionize their business. So they could take it from me, go study Lincoln Center and Misty Copeland, and you'll learn a great deal. Look at hip hop. You will learn a great deal. Look at Jay-Z and um, 
Michael Dyson's book on him, talking about the economic impact this man has. And we were talking about how you got to wait to die in order to, you know, get valuation. But Jay-Z says something in one of his songs that these people are the same people that are building you up and demonize you just so they could get magazine sales. So, you know, we have to be more in tune with what's going on. If we see that people of color are getting opportunities in these spaces, we need to be at the platform. Nobody knows that um, in the Bronx, they are building a universal hip hop museum. How many people know about that? We're not the vendors. We're not the people that supply. It's the same thing across the board in all these spaces. And then um, it's, it's very profound. Um, shout out to DJ Rich Medina uh, out in uh, Philadelphia. He's, he teaches a course at the Barnes Foundation about um, the African-American experience in art and uh, Dr. Albert Barnes and his contribution to black and poor people. He talked about how, because I, I brought up the fact that Cornell University has one of the largest hip hop collections of documents, music, Africa Mubada, Zulu Nation, all this stuff. And he talked about how they were marketing it to the MoMA and all these other institutions, and they blew them off. Now Cornell has a rich history of our stuff. Again, the person that sees the opportunity to partner and keep our culture alive will be the ones to benefit. That's just what it is. Yeah, but you know, it's, it's preaching to the choir, right? I can say that, but it's not until another person believes that and I think that that's where we're at with this George Floyd conversation, where we're at with Black Lives Matter, or where we're at with, you know, reaching into other communities and saying, you know what, I see the value of your contribution. I see the challenge that you struggle with. I see where maybe the decisions that have been put in place before I got there or when I'm here may have not been an opportunity to change the narrative and I'm right, willing right. to do something about it, right? So for all that you've spoken about regarding this museum, it still takes the wherewithal for that person to look left, look right, up and down and say, wow, for the thing that I'm doing, I've not really tried to be intentional about including anyone else that's outside of my circle. And that might be a trust thing. You know, it's easy to say, I don't know anybody. And I think that enough knows make you say, I'll be, I'll embrace the spirit of innovation and do it myself. Absolutely. And that's fine. But sometimes doors need to be open and the people holding the key need to be open to taking that advantage, taking that moment to say, you know what, I'm actually the one holding the key and I see it in my hand and I have it and I will maybe reluctantly, maybe like not by choice, but I will open the door to make it easier for that moment. Because I think that when we circle back to all of the things that I've said, I've talked about the history, telling the story, talked mm -hmm. about the private clubs, embracing the communities that surround you, embracing and looking at an effective measurable change, 25%, like really look at how can I affect a 25% shift in you know, my, my membership in the diversity of that in funding the change that, how do I look at that and, and grow this? Because in growing that game, you will be bringing their children into the game. In growing that game, you'll bring the children who have friends. 
school, the schools, like it just becomes, it is inevitable. It like, it's inevitable that it doesn't spread. It has to, because you've now reached a new population and anything that people are passionate about, they tell other people about. No, Real simple. Um, I talk about economic opportunity. Um, we're talking about in a moment where you've created an economic opportunity, but when you really think about what you've done with the MoMA example, where you brought in and ensured that this work of art was seen, when I think about how diverse that was, a lot of people had never heard of many of those artists that were featured in that moment. A lot of that work was very riveting and cultural. And if I can find my photos, because I don't even know if I was supposed to be taking photos, but yeah, okay, because oh, okay, I had no flag. photos. <laughs> yeah, I took some photos. So if I can find those photos, I'll repost them. But in even even in that moment, it was important for me to capture what I saw because I couldn't put my, I had never seen anything like that. Like it looked like art, but at the same time, it looked like memories of my own. It looked like stories my grandmother told me or that my family had shared or someone else's family had told. It looked like a memory. And I think that when it was important for someone else to put that in a space where I went. I got the tickets for my job because they were a sponsor of like a wing at the at the museum. Completely oblivious. Did they give me the tickets because, hey, the black woman wants to see the black exhibit at the museum? Maybe, I don't know. But I got the tickets and I'm happy I did. And I was interested because I had Googled the exhibit and knew that that's what it was. And so I, I looked it up because Google is a verb. So I Googled it. <laughs> um, so we talk about economic opportunity. We're talking about being able to look at all of these spaces and be intentional and look at it from a 25% just as a minimum of suppliership, but then giving sustainable structure and, and, and infrastructure so that it's not a one-time check the box activity. It creates a cycle of creation and change because through that innovation, the market will continue to grow. I don't know how many more keys you need. You've got to see it works, but People keep creating them. There are a million tea vendors at um, at the PGA show. There are a million dry fit shirt distributors. Yes, I want the sweat to wick away from my body and I want my shirt to have SPF to prevent me from getting skin cancer. Yes, there's like 50 of those at the show. Wow. I'm sure that we need one more and I'm sure there's one that could be a little bit more stylish that doesn't have all these funky prints that look like something out of like... I don't know, but sometimes they're cute, but sometimes it's just a bit much. Like I'm not really, let's just say I like golf clothes that when I leave the course and I walk through Harlem with my golf clothes on, it doesn't look like I've just come out of like the Big Apple Circus. Right. Saying. Well, you know, we do fashion, so maybe. There's a fashionable piece. Like I can be loud because I don't mind the loud stuff sometimes. I love a print. I'll leave that. I love color blocking, love all that. But sometimes I want to walk through Harlem and look like just a regular young lady that didn't look. Yeah, sometimes it's not. Look, sometimes I don't look that way. In the streets of Harlem with a very busy print skirt, it looks confusing. And while I don't care what other people think, in that moment I did. So let me just stop there. Uh, leadership, and finally like leadership. So from a leadership perspective, looking at from the professional steps, operations, um, vendors, you know, suppliers, just from top down, look at your executive boards and it, and, and make that change 25% across the board, like 25% with a 
with a pathway to promotion and external hiring. Like stop doing the incestuous in hiring. Like it's my nieces, nephews, cousins, brothers, friends who like barely could spell their name. Like, you know, the opportunity is to find talent. Now I do realize that people want to work with others that they're comfortable with. And I mean, take them out on the golf course. That's what my whole program is about with N18. I teach people how to build inclusive relationships and bridge communication gaps using golf as one many tools, how to network authentically and really connect with others in a more personal way using golf. One, you can't lie and hustle. Like for four hours, you are going to eventually show up as your authentic self. Like unless you have like some type of personality disorder and I can't even really get into what that looks like right. because that's not really my, you know, that's not my gift. That's not my calling. But to your point about being comfortable, if you're basing comfort just on skin, then you're depriving yourself from actually getting Ooh. to know other people. And that's where you lose out on an opportunity. You learn what you learn. So how do you unlearn that? Like uh, Dubois talking about double consciousness and uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar telling us we wear the mask. I mean, okay, everybody else, you got to develop a mask too. And, and maybe that mask is humility um, and being open and talking to people that don't look like you. Like a diversity is going to contribute a great deal more. So removing the, the word comfort from looking at somebody's skin contact, that's the first step. And once you start, like you said, after you walk around for four hours, you're going to get a feel for, man, am I going to enjoy this person or not? And at the end of that four hours, it gives you an idea because we do interviews in an hour with one person and they're saying, oh, based on this interview, this person's great. And that person could be a nightmare. But, you know, four hours, now nah, you can't hide much. And, and so that is the beauty of what golf can really show you about a person. I am, I'm glad that you were, you, we were able to have this dialogue on the podcast. And it also helps me launch into a, a special segment of Convos for Change, like C-O-N-B-O-S, Convos, for F-O-R-E, Change. Because we're at a point in time where we should have conversations that challenge us. We should have conversations that allow us to cut through some of the niceties. I'd rather you have an authentic conversation with me. You look at an event, I wonder why that event doesn't have any diversity. Let's talk about it. Like, what is the detractor and what can, what can be done to change that? Or I look at an event or I go to an event, I don't feel comfortable being there. What's happening there? What, what am I experiencing that is causing that kind of trauma? And if you're there with me, are you aware of what I'm what I'm feeling or are we completely two separate beings that are not even in sync with each other? I think that's important. And I think when we talk about these these moments and these opportunities, this conversation for change, I challenge people to explore art. I challenge people to get to know the works that are being created in this moment and this time. I challenge people to have conversations about spaces you've been told that you don't belong in. I challenge people to have conversations about things that you've been told that you cannot do and you cannot create. Be the change. Let's have that conversation for change. Take your risk. You know, my, my, my brother who's in the fashion industry, 
uh, Marcus Paul. So he'd be like, you know, you should go have lunch at the Plaza Hotel in New York. I'm like, a Plaza Hotel? Why would I go there? He's like, trust me, you'll go there. Nobody looks like you. Somebody's going to be interested in why are you having lunch in this space? And true to life, somebody approached me and asked to sit with me and just have a conversation. And it was just very interesting because then I started going to different places like the Mandarin Hotel, having lunch there, and then meeting people and, and listening to different conversations that are taking space. And so it's like um, exposure, and, you know, and just changing from your normal day-to-day. If it weren't for the editor of African American Golfers Digest, which is a publication that I wrote for, I never would have played golf in Malaysia. I went to Kuala Lumpur to play golf. Wow. Who does that? And it would have never been open to going places by myself to play golf in those moments. I mean, somebody has to open a door and open your eye if you don't do it yourself. A very special thank you to Newton Paul for narrating this last episode, episode number 18 of season one, obviously episode 18 because 18 holes of golf, first season, very appropriately named. So thank you, Newton Paul, for hosting the last episode for this season. We will have a bonus episode, which will be released shortly. So stay tuned for that. We'll be moving into a special segment called Conversations for Change, Convos for Change, where we'll be talking to other dynamic leaders in the golf industry, mainly the change makers, the people that are equally as dynamic or doing amazing things that want to be part of the narrative in the conversation and that have raised their hand to say, let's talk about this. So my challenge and my opportunity all become one and the same, where we give a voice to people that haven't been heard, and we get to answer difficult questions together. So if you have someone in mind, DM me. And I'd like to thank you for supporting our first season of Tease Me. Stay tuned for all of the other work that we'll be doing. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, teaseme.thepodcast, the work that I'm doing with my company, In18 LLC, and of course, my Shopify store that I launched for all the newbie golfers and some of the tchotchkes that I love to carry. That would be shop.com in-18.com. So, you know, hashtag and promo all over the place. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is Tease Me.